Welcome. You are listening to a podcast brought to you by the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy. In this talk, Dr. Pallavi Roy, Mushtaq Khan, and Antonio Andreoni discuss alternative strategic approaches to anti-corruption activities in adverse contexts. This talk was recorded on 18th October 2016. This is a very big and complex project, and it's been inspired by something that no one could have missed, which is that there is a huge problem of corruption, in, in particularly in emerging countries and developing countries. It's not limited to them, but it's particularly there because in many cases it can seriously disrupt development and in, including taking countries towards civil war and conflict because a lot of these conflicts are actually about resources and fights about who controls what. DFID is interested in that, but independently of DFID, it's been something that I've been working on for decades. Um, also, I'm very interested in, in issues of governance. What I'm going to try and do here, and then we'll have a, a discussion with all of us, is give you an exposure to the broad issues um, as quickly as I can, because they're quite complex, and then I hope we'll have some time for, for a discussion. So the background to this is that corruption has been tackled. So let me give you a one-minute synopsis before I start so you know where it's going. Okay. So corruption has been tackled in developing countries by people from advanced countries going and saying, you have corruption because your institutions don't work like they should. Right? So let's take the kinds of governance structures and democratic structures and accountability structures and rule of law and all of that from an advanced country and implement that in your country and then the problem will go away. So this is basically a top-down approach to anti-corruption and 99% of the anti-corruption that has happened has been this top-down anti-corruption. I'm going to briefly outline what that is, okay? But we all know what that is. It's setting up an anti-corruption commission, having rule of law reforms, doing good governance, doing property rights um, stuff. And 99% of the time, it produces no result whatsoever, right? It, you have a, a little bit of a blip of an improvement for maybe two years at most, and then you're back to where you were. And anti-corruption is also a basically, in developing countries, a fight between the government and the opposition, each side accusing the other. It's a political game. No one is very serious about it. So our approach is completely different from that, and for a long time was totally not the orthodoxy. And DFID would invite people like me to give an alternative view, which they would listen to um, and smile and say, okay, this is very interesting. But I think the alternative view has now become the dominant view because what used to be the dominant view has completely failed. I'm exaggerating a bit. <laughs> the dominant view hasn't failed in terms of the resources it controls and in terms of the um, policy that is being driven by it. But at least people on the coalface, whether it's in the World Bank or in DFID or wherever, who are actually doing these things know that the emperor wears no clothes and that the mainstream policies aren't working. Um, 
So they are much more willing to listen now to the alternative positions. In that sense, this is a real moment of opportunity. And our approach is essentially saying that if you look at how good governance emerged in advanced countries, it was an incremental process over a long period of time, and it happens from the bottom up, and it happens when powerful social actors in their own self-interest begin or want to support some aspects of enforcement because it is both good for them and has some impact on development and so on. So what we are doing is blindingly obvious. We are saying we have to do that in developing countries if you have to have any hope of success. You have to begin by looking at the context, understanding the issues of political power, and then work your way up in terms of developing local coalitions which in their own self-interest have an interest in fighting some aspect of corruption, which then adds up incrementally over time to something bigger. Now, you might think this is what's so profound about that. That makes sense. It actually hits at a very big debate in institutional economics and in the way economists think about um, institutions, which makes it actually quite important to have that debate analytically, and for a long time people weren't willing to listen to the alternative. Okay, So that's the background. Let me um, now start with some definitions and some um, theory and some evidence, and then at the very end I'll summarize our alternative approach, which by the time I get there will not have a huge amount of time, but I'll quickly do that and then we can have the discussion. So what is corruption and why are we interested in it? In social sciences, in economics and in the kind of corruption analysis that international agencies do, we are not interested in corruption as a moral problem, right? That, you know, people are bad, so let's make them good. The issue about corruption is that it has an impact on how states operate. The state is supposed to be an important player in economic development. Corruption is defined as rule-violating behavior by people in power, right? So it has an impact on how a state operates. Because a state is important for economic development and in terms of resource allocation and in terms of political accountability and all of that stuff, that's why we're interested in corruption. So this is very different from you know, anything you don't like about what the government does, you say the government is corrupt, is a different kind of discourse. And unfortunately, that interpretation of corruption infects the analysis of corruption, and you have to be very clear about what you're talking about. So corruption is, it happens when you have some public official breaking a formal rule. A formal rule is a rule which is enforced by the state. And they do it because they have some selfish motive. In other words, they don't do it accidentally because you didn't know the rule, right? So you're deliberately breaking some rule because you, want, you have some benefit from doing that. That's corruption. And the economic theory is that, of course, the, the problem is that the rule you broke might also have been a really problematic rule and needed to be broken. But on the assumption that most rules have some function and are important for development, therefore a state that systematically breaks rules 
has very damaging outcomes. Now, that sentence has a ton of theory behind it, which I don't have time to go into, but we can have a, a discussion later on on that. That discussion of what the state does and the role of corruption is part of a much bigger discussion in economics and in institutional economics in particular about something called rent-seeking. And so a, a very small um, tangent on that before I go on because it's actually quite important. Rents are benefits that states create through their intervention. So anything that the state does changes the distribution of benefits in society. It hurts some people, it benefits other people. You have, you have a housing policy, education policy, um, health policy. Some people are benefiting and some people are paying for it. Right? So rents are these transfers which go from one group to another group or, or benefits are transferred. And anything that the state does creates a rent, right? I mean, if it didn't create a rent, there would be no point in the state intervening. As soon as you have a rent, so this is a very technical term, as soon as you have a rent, people will spend resources trying to influence the state to get the rent for themselves or to change the allocation of rents or to get a different structure of rents or to destroy the rents or to protect the rents. In other words, the rent itself triggers further expenditures which are called rent-seeking. Rent-seeking is another term for politics. Right? So people are engaged in all kinds of activities to make the state do things differently. And those activities cost resources. Those resources are rent-seeking resources. And here is the real problem. You can think of corruption as illegal rent-seeking. Right? Someone is spending money to influence how the state should allocate resources. You should give me the contract, not someone else. You should give me something, and etc. So corruption is illegal rent-seeking. But in any society, there's a lot of legal rent-seeking as well, which is going on, like expenditures on political parties or employing previous prime ministers in hugely well-paying consultants' uh, positions, and, and so on and so on. And this is the structure through which influence is bought. The rich will always buy influence. Now, one reason why you find a lot of corruption in developing countries is that in developing countries, most of the rent-seeking is illegal. And one reason you find less corruption in advanced countries is in advanced countries, a lot of the rent-seeking has become legalized, institutionalized, regulated, and therefore structured in such a way that the rich are still buying influence, but they're doing it in rule-following ways. That doesn't mean that it's good. Right? So you have to make a very strong distinction between the legality of something and the economic impact of that thing. So you can have completely legal rent-seeking, which is very socially damaging, like big banks having a lot of influence on policy-making, which then craters the world economy. Right? You can have legal rent-seeking, which is not so damaging, is the processes through which different groups like universities or hospitals lobby governments to get more resources. You can have, and here is where it gets interesting, you can have a lot of illegal rent-seeking, which is seriously damaging. But here is the crunch. You can also have a lot of illegal rent-seeking, which is not that damaging, and might really be the way in which a developing country does business. So 
if you want to have a serious anti-corruption strategy, you can't just look at corruption, you have to dig down into a rent-seeking analysis. You have to have an economic analysis of what is it that is happening here in terms of rents. And then you have to target those parts of the rent-seeking, and we are particularly concerned about the illegal, which is seriously damaging to that society. If you don't, if you go in blind and you say, I'm against all corruption right now here, you are basically uh, either going to blow that society up, take it over and run it, or you're going to be laughed at, or people are going to say, this is a very good idea, take your money and then not do anything. But it's not going to actually result in what you want or you think is going to be achieved, because what you think you are trying to achieve is converting that developing country into a country like Norway or Sweden. And that's a long historical process, right? Because you can only get to that kind of institutionalized rent-seeking and, and legalized lobbying and legalized politics when lots of other things are in place in that society, including that that society has become a highly productive one. Okay, And I'm going to very quickly explain why there's a link between economic productivity and rule-following behavior. And this is really important and critical to our whole approach, that you can't explain rule-following behavior in societies which have no productivity. And there's a very good reason for that. Okay. Let me quickly give you a, a visual on the kind of evidence that has informed my work for the last 20 years. This is some charts which I constructed many, many years ago, and I still use them because they are very visually tell you what is the problem. And the problem is this. You can have lots of indicators of rule-following behavior in a society. It's called good governance. I'm not going to go into it in, in detail now because there's no time. So rule of law, property rights, low corruption, political accountability. These are measures of rule-following behavior in a society. There are different agencies like the World Bank which give you numbers, a score of a country in terms of how rule-following it is. You can critique this as a methodologically. It often means nothing. But using the World Bank's own data, actually, you can see some real problems in the way they do the analysis. So here on the bottom is the score of good governance. And on top is uh, how rich the country is. And if you map, if you plot that, you find a very strong correlation. Countries which have more rule following are richer. So what do you conclude from this? You can conclude from these two completely different things. You can conclude that if you want to become richer, you have to become more rule-following. But you could also conclude the exact opposite causality, which is that if you become richer, you become more rule-following. So causality is the critical thing in social science, right? You can see a correlation between two different things, but you have to really ask yourself, what's caused what? Are you rich because you are rule-following, or have you become rule-following because you're rich? That is the absolutely crunch point of the discussion. Now, to test causality, again, very crudely, without going into a lot of methodological issues, very simple way to ask the question is, do countries which have a slightly better rule-following behavior grow faster? Are they more developmental? 
Because if that is the case, then you would expect between two poor countries, the poor country that was more rule-following would develop faster, and therefore it's worthwhile spending a lot on making it more rule-following. Not only that, you would also have an idea that it is possible to become more rule-following in a poor country, and therefore you can become richer. Or to put it a slightly different way, did poor countries who became rich do it by becoming more rule-following? Is that the case in China? Is that the case in South Korea? Is that the case in Taiwan? Is that the case in Malaysia? Or if you go earlier, Japan? As soon as you ask it that way, you know the answer. Right? But, let's, but the data also tells you the same thing. So here is the same data. These are poor countries which aren't doing very well. But here now, instead of the per capita income, we have the growth rate. So we are, we are plotting the growth rate of countries with different governance characteristics. So as you go that way, you have more rule-following behavior. As you go up, you have higher growth rates. The red countries are poor countries which are not growing, high, not growing rapidly. Okay? The blue countries are advanced countries. They have a higher score on rule-following behavior. They have a slightly higher growth rate. The real question is, where are the high-growth developing countries? Right? So if the argument that good governance gives you high growth was true, where would you expect to see those countries? Since we have very little time, I'll give you the answer. Right? But it's just, and if you're doing social science, you have to think of these things as a puzzle, right? So the answer to this puzzle is, you would expect that poor countries, which had slightly higher growth rates, would be therefore higher up than the red countries, because they had higher growth rates. But if good governance was true, they would also be to the right of those countries, because they would have a better score on rule-following behavior. So you would expect to see the developmental countries north-east of the red countries, right? But you don't. They're exactly on top. In other words, the high-growth developing countries have the same governance characteristics in terms of rule-following behavior as the badly performing developing countries. They have the same average level of corruption. They have the same average level of uh, poor property rights. They have the same average level of political accountability failures, etc., etc., which is not surprising if you've been reading the news of which countries are growing rapidly. So if you then plot this, what do you get? You get countries can have low or high governance scores, and you have three types of countries. You have advanced countries, which score highly on good governance but have a moderate growth rate. But then you have two types of developing countries. And both types of developing countries score very badly on the good governance characteristics. Right? China in the 1980s was not scoring higher than India in the 1980s on anything. Democracy, rule of law, anti-corruption, nothing. But developing countries are in two groups. One group which is not growing very fast and another group which is... And more than that, the countries which are growing very fast might collapse and become countries which are not growing very fast. This is also very common. 
So there's a lot of movement of so Brazil, for example, has long periods of growing very fast and then long periods of not growing very fast. So actually, most of the movement of developing countries is up and down, right? They have high growth, low growth, high growth. The ones which basically are successful stay in the high growth for a long period of time. So then the real question is not how do you improve governance in developing countries to make them look more like advanced countries? That's the standard answer. The standard answer is go and do good governance. Go and impose a rule of law. Go and have political accountability. Go and do X, Y, and Z. The standard answer makes no sense because no country actually did it. Right? It's a mythology which we have constructed by drawing a regression line and saying slightly higher rule of law gives you slightly higher growth rate. So the regression line is real, but it has no historical basis because that was not the trajectory of any historical transformation. The historical transformation is always in this way. Not so dynamic countries become dynamic countries. And then there are lots of governance capabilities and institutions which take you there. And here is the big problem. The institutions and governance capabilities that take you there are not common to all countries. So the institutions that worked in China are not the ones that were in South Korea, were not the ones in Taiwan, were not the ones in Germany, were not the ones in Japan. So there's no common pattern there. So you can't say if you take those institutions and you take them to Nigeria, then Nigeria will grow rapidly. And this is not possible because there is no common set of institutions. And once you are in group two for a long time and you become basically eight to $10,000 per capita income, you become upper middle income, you then start moving in the direction of advanced countries. That's the transition that a South Korea or a Taiwan are beginning to make. Right? So the historical transition is in that way. The good governance transition is a regression line, which doesn't happen in reality. And that's the background for our approach to anti-corruption. So the anti-corruption is not, can we achieve an aggregate reduction of corruption to make Bangladesh look like Norway? This is not possible. But are there incremental changes which attack the most damaging kinds of corruption in Bangladesh? So it has a better chance of going from, actually it is in group two now, these are all high growth countries, but it stays in group two for longer and it doesn't fall back into group one. That's the anti-corruption challenge. And if it stays in group two for a long enough time, because you've identified the most damaging types of corruption, then with any luck in 50 or 60 years time, if it ever becomes a seven, $8,000 economy, it can start moving towards real good governance. But real good governance at this stage in terms of general rule of law, general multi-party democracies which happen very nicely and smoothly, generally low corruption, is a complete, not only a pipe dream, is not useful policy to start with because you have nowhere to begin that. Okay. How long do we have? Well, past two. Okay, so I can go on for at least half an hour. So now we come to the debate, and the debate is between the mainstream, what used to be the standard World Bank, DFID kind of approach, which I call the standard economic theory of corruption, and then we contrast that with an alternative. But as I said, the mainstream is kind of fraying at the edges. So apparently next year's World Development Report, which is coming out from the World Bank, the, the World Development Report is a flagship document of the World Bank, 
Well, the next World Development Report has a whole page on our approach to anti-corruption and saying this is actually something which we should be giving more attention to. So they're fraying at the edges, right? But because it's not working, the standard way of thinking of anti-corruption. Indeed, of governance isn't working. So the standard way of thinking about governance reforms in developing countries isn't working. By the way, just to avoid any unnecessary um, debates at the end, nothing that I'm saying is a statement about desirability. It's a, it's a, these are all arguments about policy feasibility. So it's not saying corruption is a good thing, why should we, I mean, don't worry about it. It's not saying who wants democracy, we can live in undemocratic societies. It's not saying what's the point of a good rule of law, we can, you know, is, no. Those are things which are highly desirable on their own terms. We all want to live in societies with a good rule of law, low corruption, very accountable governments. The debate is really about are they policy variables which you can change to affect development outcomes? That's a completely different question. So it's saying, if I want to make Nigeria more developmental, is it a policy variable to say it should have a better democracy? And this is where we are saying no. Democracy is also an outcome of economic and other social development. It's not a policy variable. That's the debate. So don't uh, confuse this discussion, which is about the drivers of development and the causality of what drives development with the desirability of these things. Right? So th that's a completely separate issue. And people often think if it's desirable, then that's my policy variable. I should go for it. But that's not... Yeah. So, how do the standard economists think about anti-corruption? They think of anti-corruption as a very individualistic... I'm not going to go through this. I'll just explain it to you, okay? <clears throat> so, how does a standard economist think of corruption? They think of it as a transaction between two people. There's someone who is a state or public official and somebody who is... Um, asking for or expecting some public service. It could be getting a permit, it could be getting a license, it could be getting your passport, it could be getting whatever, electricity connection, right? So the standard economist will say, the person who is giving you this thing has two characteristics. One is that they have discretion. They can decide to give it to you or not give it to you. So discretion, which is a decision-making power of the public official, is a problem because by not giving it something to you, that person is depriving you of a rent, of an economic benefit. Okay? So the public official controls a rent. The public official is also greedy because this is a standard economic assumption, right? All people are self-seeking, and we are all trying to maximize. So th why is a public official different? By the way, this is a very interesting debate in itself, because states and public officials and you know, public service works because everybody is not always greedy. And, and you couldn't really have social development if everyone was always greedy. And that's a different debate. But if you assume that, that public officials are greedy, and, and most, many of them are many, much of the time, so it's a reasonable assumption. Okay? <coughs> and the problem is that they have discretion to give you or not give you something. Corruption follows. 
Corruption follows because then I will pay you to get something which you have the power not to give me. In other words, if I can't get the public servant to be rule-following and take out the discretion, they just see, is this person entitled to this benefit? They are, I have to give it, I have no discretion. If you can make the public official have no discretion, then corruption declines. So the standard economic approach to anti-corruption has two characteristics. One is to reduce discretion through all kinds of interventions. Right? And you reduce it by two things. You improve rule-following behavior of the public officials by the good governance reforms. You increase the rule of law. You have more pun higher punishments and so on. And you also change the cost-benefit calculations of each party to this transaction. And how do you change the cost-benefit calculations? You increase the level of punishments for corruption, and you increase the costs of being caught for corruption by paying people higher salaries, for example. So if you pay people higher salaries, they have more to lose if they are caught with corruption. And you then increase the penalties for, their anti for, for being corrupt. This is a standard approach. The, much of anti-corruption basically does this. Right? <coughs> I don't need to say that it totally fails, right? There's a whole huge raft of evidence which shows that you raise salaries, no effect on corruption. You have anti-corruption commissions, you have big trials, you have big penalties, maybe an impact for two or three months, two or three years max, then you revert back to the norm. So the standard approach of trying to in, in, you know, increase the rule of law and anti-corruption doesn't work. So why doesn't it work? It doesn't work because they make a fundamental error in looking at social transactions as individual transactions and not locate the transaction into the nature of that society. So where is that individual who is transacting for corruption located? It makes a huge deal of difference. Because... And this is, again, a, a very big area of debate, not only in corruption theory, but also in general economics. The link between the macro and the micro, the calculation of the individual and the pressures and constraints coming from the social structure, the organization of society. There are some structural reasons why attempting to increase the rule-following behavior of the individual doesn't work in developing countries because society as a whole is not rule-following. Now, if society as a whole is not rule-following, and then you, I'll give you some quick reasons why, but these are actually very deep debates and, 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 and discussions. If you are in a society which is not rule-following, you can't get two people to become rule-following. Right? It's like if nobody is following the traffic rules in your, in your city, and you try to create penalties for two people who are just driving around and you think my penalties will make those two people behave differently when nobody is following the traffic rules it can't work right and it not only can't work because following the rules will probably kill those people because they'll be run over when no one is following the rules but also once you pick them up they won't be punished because the police and the judges and the courts which are doing it are themselves not rule following right so the attempt to actually have a rule-following uh, enforcement in a society where 
the prime minister is not rule following, the ministers are not rule following, the judges aren't rule following, the courts aren't rule following, is a complete waste of time. So the only time you will actually enforce this is when the people you have picked up are for some reason the political enemies of the people in power, then you will get a real strong enforcement of anti-corruption. But you don't want that because this is just converting anti-corruption into a political feud between those who have power and those who don't. So why are developing countries not rule following? And here we have a very strong position, which is we completely reject explanations based on culture. Right? So there is a whole raft of reasons which are coming from people who are saying this is a cultural problem. Now, I again, I don't have time, but culture is simply a description of how people behave. And again, the issue is, yes, if you go to a developing country, it looks like there is a culture which says we shouldn't follow the rules. But the real question is, what is the dependent variable and what is the independent variable? What is causing what? Are people behaving like that because everybody else is behaving like that and the structure is like that? Or is something innately genetic in people's heads, which is culture, and that's why they are behaving? In other words, is culture causing the problem or is culture simply reflecting how people behave? This is really a fundamental issue and this affects everything that you do in terms of governance, right? It's, a, it's the same as saying, are people, you know, the institutions in a society, are they driving the outcome or the institutions themselves the product of complex social processes? Culture is exactly like that. So we reject culture as an explanation, not because we are saying there are no differences in culture. That's not the point. There are differences in culture. But for us, culture is a dependent variable. It's not the independent variable. Culture changes when societies change. You can't first change culture. I mean, imagine if you said, the problem in Nigeria is the culture. What do you go and do? How, what, is, what is the point of that statement, right? You, 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 anyway. So our explanation of the absence of rule-following behavior is not cultural. It's largely institutional and economic. The first reason is that think of why people follow rules in advanced countries. People follow rules in advanced countries not because you have an extremely strong police force which is observing everybody and picking everybody up and punishing them. There is a strong police force, but that police force would completely fail if rule-following behavior depended on their enforcement alone. The reason why you have rule-following rule behavior in, in advanced countries is actually quite different. And the reason is that the rules in advanced countries are aligned with the interests of powerful organizations you are basically in a capitalist society where most of the rules are about protecting capitalist rights and, and production activities and contracting and banking and so on and so on. The powerful organizations in an advanced country want the enforcement of those rules. They might as individuals want to break the rules, but they want you to enforce the rules for everybody else. Because their survival in terms of economic activity, long-term investment, contracting, depends on the enforcement of those rules. Therefore, an individual or an organization which breaks rules will be shunned by other organizations very quickly, right? Because they won't do business with you. Why? Because it's not in their interest to do it. So powerful organizations want the enforcement of rules. Then the small number of violators, the police can take care of it. And here is a fundamental difference that in a developing country, 
powerful organizations are not yet aligned with the rules. And so most powerful organizations in a developing country do not want the enforcement of the rules, either for themselves, and they don't care about whether you enforce it on anybody else or not. It, their survival and their access to uh, um, resources and profits do not depend on rule-following behavior. There's a long set of explanations for that, which will take me too much time. But just for those of you who come from developing countries, you will know what I mean, right? If you're a company in a developing country, if you're a business in a developing country, your profits do not depend on rule-following behavior. Your profits depend on can you get access to the land, can you get access to the gas, can you get access to whatever, and your political connections are much more important than rule-following behavior. This transition only happens when you have a society with tens of thousands of organizations who can only interact with each other in contractual ways, who then want the enforcement of rules, who then say, okay, we are not going to deal with people who break the rules, and then policing becomes possible. This is one extremely important point to keep in mind. We are doing anti-corruption in societies where most powerful organizations don't want the rules to be followed. You have to remember that, otherwise you can get killed very easily, right? Literally. I mean, you're operating in context where there are mafias running the society and the mafias are breaking rules all the time, and yet you are trying to incrementally change the system. The second really important difference between advanced and developing countries is the nature of politics. And again, this is a very big topic. Um, the brief summary is the following. In advanced countries, the resources for maintaining political stability come from taxing, rule-following organizations, and then you have to spend those resources in rule-following ways. Because the only way that you, you can tax companies and individuals who are themselves rule-following is if you spend their money in rule-following ways. So the, the rent transfers that drive political stability in an advanced country are generally speaking rule-following. You tax people and then you transfer that, you subsidize you, you, all of that. 40% of GDP in this country is taxed and transferred, right? So there's a huge amount of redistributive activities, rent subbing. 40% of GDP is just rents. Right? You're taxing one group and you're spending. But this is happening in a rule-following way. That's what makes politics rule-following. In a developing country, there are no such resources to tax because the rule-following sector is very small. Therefore, the bulk of the resources that you are getting for running politics is not coming from the rule-following sector. So the bulk of the money for politics is in many cases, completely outside the budget. People don't do politics in developing countries because they have a different agenda of how to spend the budget. There's nothing in the budget. They're engaged in politics to use political power to capture resources outside the budget. So politics is patron-client, politics is clientelism, politics is about exchanging favors, politics is about capturing resources. That's the political norm. So if politics is not rule-following, your prime minister is not rule-following, your ministers are not rule-following, what does rule of law mean, and how do you do rule of law reforms in this kind of society? Okay, keep that in mind. So you're, you're not going to make very quick progress on rule-following behavior. The second point is changing the incentives of people. This is the second plank of the standard economic theory. 
also doesn't work because the individuals whose behavior are trying to change are located in networks and are located in a society. Nobody is individually deciding to be corrupt or not corrupt. The bureaucrat who is taking a bribe is located in a network where this bribe is shared between many people in a flow, and it's not an individual calculation. In fact, an individual bureaucrat who says, I don't want to take this bribe, will be blocking a flow of resources in that chain and will be rapidly removed. This, by the way, happens frequently in developing countries. Right? Honest bureaucrats, who for whatever reason find it difficult to take, are moved into places where they are not doing so much damage for others. That is why you can have whatever level of salary, whatever level of penalty, when it actually comes to the enforcement of this, the system will protect itself. In other words, you can't create anti-corruption incentives with changing the levels of incentives without asking what kinds of networks are people located in. Okay, so this brings us to, I, I spend more time discussing the mainstream because it's important to understand what's different about what we're doing. So what is different about what we're doing is we take this as the starting point. And then we say, how do you do anti-corruption in societies where the political systems are structurally corrupt? It doesn't, by the way, mean it's good or bad, right? Because patron-client politics is a way of actually distributing resources to all kinds of social groups. Much of it is completely justifiable, except that it's not coming from official public budgetary resources. Nothing, nothing that I'm saying is a moral judgment on anything. It's just a description of how societies are. So if your society is basically doing a lot of off-budget politics and a lot of patron-client politics, if your society doesn't have many powerful organizations which want to enforce a rule of law, at the same time, some of this corruption is extremely damaging and is destroying your economic development, how do you organize an anti-corruption strategy here? This is the challenge, right? And the answer to this challenge is you start by saying, we are not in the business of finding the big fix which will get rid of all corruption. We are not in the business of saying we will convert this patron-client politics into Nordic social democracy. Can't be done, right? Because Nordic social democracy requires tens of thousands of highly productive firms that are paying tax and are rule-following, which you, you don't have in a Tanzania or a Nigeria or a Bangladesh. So here the anti-corruption strategy has two components. We are looking for, we are going to do a, a rents analysis to identify what are the most damaging types of rent capture and rent seeking. That is the high negative impact part of it, right? And then we are asking, which of these is it feasible to not get rid of, but to mitigate? to change the characteristics of this corruption by finding some local reconfiguration of power, interests, institutions, rules, or policies, which will help us to achieve slightly better outcomes. So the starting point is to map the way in which corruption is happening in countries, and then identify the most damaging parts of this corruption map and then identify those parts of this most damaging bits which you can do something about. So it's a, 
intersection of feasibility and impact that we are looking for. So before you even start doing the anti-corruption, there is a lot of mapping that has to be done. There is a lot of analysis of what is feasible, what is not feasible, um, which are the really damaging. And, and you might find, and we do find already in the work that we've already done in the past and, and doing now, that some of the really damaging parts of, of, of corruption, actually you can't do anything about. Because they're so closely connected to very powerful interests which have, you know, to take them on is basically you're calling for a revolution. So some of the most damaging parts of the corruption you leave out and some of the most feasible parts are actually not very damaging, so you don't do it either. So you're working at something in the middle which is both feasible and, and so on. So this is the theory of change. The theory of change, for those of you who don't know, so, the, so you, when you do policy-based work, you have to have a theory of change. Why is it that, you know, the so what test? I'm doing this research, so what? What is it going to change? And the theory of change is that we are working in societies where the political settlements, and the political settlement is my term, our term for describing the distribution of power in a society, and that's what I was just referring to, that powerful organizations don't want rule-following behavior. So in developing countries, you have political settlements and levels of development, productivity, which don't allow collective enforcement of formal rules. These are not rule-following societies. So in these societies, the anti-corruption is to sequentially attack corruption, one by one by one, at points which, is, which are feasible and high impact. And by the way, this is not, you know, con contentious. And the reason why this is contentious, let me give you the counter-argument to this, the counter-argument which would come from the older, you know, good governance people, is that if you're in a society which is basically not rule-following, and you try to fix one thing, that one thing will be reversed because the system as a whole is corrupt. So, so the counter-argument is you have to change the whole thing. You can't change it bit by bit, which sounds very plausible, right? The point is that actually there's no historical evidence that it ever happened. There's no big bang transition in societies. You don't take a non-rule-following society and it suddenly becomes rule-following and then everything is fine. So though this is a very problematic and we will have reverses and there will be a lot of problems, this is the only historical way of all societies, of this incremental, pragmatic, step-by-step. Step. You go forward two steps, you go back one step, there is reversal, and then you go forward two steps. That's how change happens. So there is an obvious criti criticism you can make of this, but this obvious criticism is the reality, right? You are doing reform in a, in a, in a system which is fundamentally corrupt, and there will be a lot of kickback. But the answer is not, now we have to change the system, because no one knows what that means. That is a meaningless statement. So if you can do this properly, then in this incremental pragmatic way, you will have a reduction of corruption, and gradually you will, it will become more possible to do the top-down anti-corruption, the more diversified and complex your society becomes, the more interest there are who want to do this anti-corruption, the more likely it becomes. Okay, let me fast forward now into some of the things because there's a lot of stuff I could discuss but we don't have time and I want to leave half an hour. So let me summarize the kind of four broad strategies that we have without going through a lot of the details. So let me, <laughs> this, you, you, can, you can have these slides and read them. <laughs> let me not, I, I don't have time for this. Okay, 
Let me just go to our approach very quickly. Our approach is, is bottom-up, right? We want to do a very detailed sectoral analysis of how there, there are problems in particular sectors which are resulting in poor economic or developmental outcomes. So the, the bad outcome could be a developmental outcome. For example, public health services don't work and people have higher than necessary levels of morbidity, right? That's a developmental outcome. It's not an economic. But it could also be an economic outcome that the state is providing resources for skills development. Instead of the skills development happening, you are hiring incompetent people to provide the skills because they're politically connected and you're producing unemployable people as a result. That's a measurable economic impact of that. Or the state gives subsidies for electricity generation Instead of that subsidy for electricity generation resulting in more power, you have politically connected companies of, of uh, you know, coming in and capturing those subsidies, not generating the power, huge power cuts, economic costs are high. The nature of the problem in each case is quite different. And I didn't have time to go through an analysis of the different types of rents, which are up there, but we can... I can give you some examples in, a, in the discussion if you're interested. So the nature of the analysis will be sectoral first, looking at the power sector, the health sector, skill sectors, um, the development of um, uh, technology policy in upgrading the garments industry or the textile industry or the electronics industry. Look at how public policy is creating incentives which are supposed to be driving economic development, allocating resources which are supposed to be having developmental outcomes like health, education. These are all rents, right? So the state gives, is allocating a rent to the health sector. Instead of getting a health outcome, a lot of it is being leached out. The same in education, the same in skills, the same in industrial policy, energy policy, etc. So you first begin by looking at what is the structure of incentives that the state has and why is the outcome adverse? In other words, the outcome is usually adverse because some of these resources are being captured by political coalitions or coalitions of people who are using illicit exchanges to share these benefits amongst themselves. The way this is happening is very different in different sectors, is very different in different activities, and the degree of damage is very different in different activities. Let me give you an example. I mean, I think if I give you an example from history, it'll give you an idea of the kind of range of outcomes that can happen. Why did some types of corruption not have such damaging effects in a South Korea or a China? How could South Korea and China develop rapidly in the presence of high levels of corruption? Okay? They could do that because some of the types of corruption that were happening in those countries shared the benefits of economic development without blocking the economic development. In other words, you can have a configuration of forces where 
the benefits of growth are shared by public officials and businesses in a way that doesn't stop the business from becoming more productive. Example, the state gives a subsidy to an industry to invest in better technology so it becomes more competitive. Okay? That subsidy is a rent for that industry. The industry takes this money, it invests it in raising its productivity, it becomes more productive, its profitability goes up, the public official says, I helped you in raising your productivity, I want some benefit from your extra profits. The businessman says, fine, here is a kickback, run your politics with it, or build yourself a house. It's very undesirable, but it doesn't stop the productivity growth. That's a business-government partnership where the public money is being used to raise productivity, the firm is creating more jobs, is creating more exports, and some of the profits are being kicked back. This is an e example of a type of corruption which doesn't have a huge negative impact. On the other hand, you could have exactly the same scenario. The state gives money to that company. The company takes this money and puts it in a Swiss bank. It invests nothing in productivity. It then makes a deal with the politician and shares some of the money in the Swiss bank. The money has gone. There is no productivity. There is no employment. There are no exports. Both are corrupt. One has very limited social impact. All you have done is redistributed the profits. The other has vast social impact. The society has lost investment and nothing has happened. How do you explain the difference? You have to go much deeper into the organizations, the power structures, the incentives, who's monitoring whom, whose interest is to do what, and why are these outcomes different. In the countries that are not doing well, you have much more of the second type of corruption, the value-destroying corruption. In the societies that are doing well, you have much more of the profit-sharing corruption. Right? The state and business cooperate, they make money, and the money is shared. Neither is desirable, but one is much less desirable. Right? And the way you and, and the societies that have the first eventually become diversified and complex societies, and then you create interest for you know, those people who used to pay bribes to the state now begin to say, actually, we don't want to pay bribes to the state, we are paying enough taxes, and the taxes should take care of the politics, and we don't want to pay bribes anymore. And that's exactly how it happens in South Korea or Japan, and, uh, and before that in England and America. So we want to basically find instances where you can, at the micro level, reconfigure some of the institutions and policies so that the powerful players themselves in their own self-interest start behaving in more productive ways. And in behaving in more productive ways, they change the nature of the corruption. And so we have four clusters of anti-corruption strategies, which we have identified a whole range of projects. And these clusters of anti-corruption strategies are four types. The first we call incentive restructuring. So what does incentive restructuring mean? Incentive restructuring means that the state is providing some policy support to achieve a, an outcome. It could be a better health outcome. It could be technology policy. It could be whatever. The way that this is being provided is often 
in such a way that you are creating incentives for unproductive organizations to capture it or opportunities for unproductive organizations to capture it. If you could change the way in which you are offering the subsidy, it might become more difficult for unproductive organizations to capture it and more productive organizations would capture it and then be more productive. Let me give you an example of this. In Bangladesh, subsidies to provide cheap electricity are given in the form of the state covering, I mean, this is a little bit technical, but you know, to give you just a quick idea. The state buys power from private sector power generators and sells it on to consumers at a slightly lower price. This is implicitly giving a subsidy to the power pr producer to in encourage the production of power. But the way this subsidy is given makes it very non-credible for serious power producers to invest in this country. Why? Because a subsidy depends on a budgetary transfer from the budget to the power development board to sell the power to consumers and that deficit is growing and growing and is now more than a billion dollars a year. So from the budget, the Bangladesh government has to transfer a billion dollars a year every year to the power development board so it can buy power at a slightly higher price. Who would invest in that context? If you're a serious power producer, you would say, the only way I can ensure this is if I have good political contacts. In other words, I'm a politically connected company. That has adverse selection. You're driving out the good investors. Those people then simply produce extremely expensive power because they know in any case their subsidies depend on political access. So the subsidy actually in induces not cheap power and more investment in power, it induces more expensive power and politically connected companies bidding. So how do you change that? So a lot of our research is about talking to the power companies, talking to the power generators and, and government and saying, are there better ways of giving the subsidy? What would happen if instead of buying the power at this inflated price, you set up a long-term investment fund and said power generators will get low-interest, long-term loans to produce power at a cheaper price. I don't want to go into the economics of this, but this changes the incentives completely. Because then suddenly, a potentially productive investor can say, okay, I can make power cheaper because I'm getting this long-term interest um, subsidy. The long-term interest subsidy is less politically controlled. It's coming from a bank-like entity. And suddenly, you might attract better investments. Now, this is not just pure theory. We have also looked at countries which have those arrangements and countries which give the subsidy through subsidized credit do better than countries that provide the subsidy by difference between the buying and selling price. So here is an example of an changing the incentive structures can not do away with all corruption, but do away with the most damaging types of corruption. Similarly, the second strategy, again, Two more minutes, i just quickly sum up. A second, and so a whole cluster of strategies are of this type. There are lots of things which are basically about redesigning the way in which the support is given. How do you, how do you support the health sector? How do you support the education sector? By changing the way the subsidy is given, which is, by the way, also important in, in this country. Do you support education 
by giving money to students and letting them go and buy their education? Or do you give a subsidy to education by giving money to schools and universities and, and then monitoring and enforcing that? The outcomes are completely different depending on your governance capabilities. And one way of giving the subsidy might have a very bad effect compared to another, depending on the distribution of power in your society and <coughs> interests and so on. So this is exactly what we are doing. The second cluster of um, strategies is looking at the different interests of different groups of players. If you look at the textile sector or the garment sector or electronic sector in a developing country, all the firms in that sector are corrupt. But they are corrupt for very different reasons. Some of them are corrupt because they don't want to be corrupt, but they can't get anything that they want done without being corrupt. Others are corrupt because they could not possibly be profitable without being corrupt, because they actually don't have the productivity or technology to be pro pro profitable, and they drive the corruption by, for example, being allowed to produce even though they don't meet any building standards or health standards or labor standards, because they can't, because they're undercapitalized, but they bribe and they're producing. Other companies have relatively good standards, they could meet the building conditions, they could meet the health and safety conditions, but they can't get their certification because the system is corrupt, so they have to bribe to get their certification. So the second type of strategy is to say, let's look at the different incentives that people have to be corrupt, separate out the different types of firms and organizations, and make it possible for the potentially compliant to be actually compliant. If you can make it possible for those who want to be compliant to be compliant, you again create support for anti-corruption. But if, there's, if no one can be um, in business without being corrupt and you say, I'm doing anti-corruption, you have no support from anyone and your anti-corruption fails. The third strategy is that sometimes you can mobilize um, groups outside the productive sector to put pressure on the productive sector to follow the rules slightly better. Or you can play off different productive interests, some of whom want rule-following behavior and some of whom don't want rule-following behavior. Again, there are a whole cluster of um, issues here. For example, in developing countries have tariffs to protect emerging industries. Electronics industry in Bangladesh, automobile industry in Nigeria are protected by tariffs. Smugglers and importers violate those tariffs. They bring in cheap automobiles or cheap electronics by not paying the, the tariffs and they bribe the National Board of Revenue. This hurts the domestic producers. So these are examples where, or they hurt consumers or they hurt somebody. So these are examples where by organizing the collective action by group organization of those adversely affected who might collectively be quite powerful, the electronics people in Bangladesh, for example, are collectively quite powerful, if you can organize them, that creates pressure on the National Board of Revenue to actually start enforcing these rules. Now, this is something which has been done before, but the difference is that normally when people talk about collective action, they talk in general about social collective action, right? Society organizing to fight corruption. Social collective action often doesn't work because society is too diffuse, too badly organized, and there are too many interests which, with too many different what we are talking about here is collective action of very targeted groups which are adversely affected by very specific issues and you're trying to address those very specific in other words it's a bottom-up collective action not a top-down collective action that you bring out 10,000 people on the streets to fight about corruption that has no effect because that you can't change the rule following nature of that society 
And the last and final one is another cluster of anti-corruption, again bottom-up. It's saying a lot of corruption is driven because there are conflicting rights in those societies, and this is typically in the case of land rights. Land rights are very confused in developing countries because you have a transition from traditional, some in, in Africa often collectively owned rights, to individual capitalist type of land rights. In that transition, you have a lot of confusion about who owns what. And that confusion is often settled through corruption. So, and, and this is not just in land, but in many other areas where you have conflicting rights. This kind of corruption cannot be settled without addressing the underlying conflict of rights. You have to, un you have to find some institutional and political processes to resolve those conflicting rights without which the corruption can't be fought. And again, in some marginal areas of land rights for the vulnerable, for you know, poor women in Bangladesh and land rights, there are um, NGOs and other activities which are trying to find these kinds of conflict resolution solutions, which then prevent these vulnerable groups from having to pay to resolve this conflict by engaging in corruption in the land office and in courts and with the police. So anyway, so we have these four broad types of anti-corruption approaches, bottom-up, identifying specific rent capture stories in very specific political settlements, mapping the configuration of power, and figuring out what is feasible or not feasible, is an agenda of incremental, but we believe very radical and important processes of changing the governance structures of these countries, which is a long-term strategy and trying to move away from these completely failed, top-down, big-bang type of strategies which have just created despondency in developing countries because you do it, it fails, and people say, actually, there's something genetically wrong with us because we can't do anything about corruption, we can't do anything about democracy. So th those kinds of top-down things actually often do more harm than good because they demoralize societies and depress people. And I think that we are trying to come up with an agenda which is small but doable, which will over time actually put things on the ground which can be done. I think I've gone much beyond time, so thank you very much. We are neither demoralized nor depressed. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's take some questions. You lead them and bring your colleagues in, I'm sure. Well, first of all, it was an excellent uh, presentation, very pragmatic and very objective. Um, I'm from Pakistan and it's a developing country and we have this movement going on for greater accountability and anti-corruption. Uh, as you mentioned that unless and until the society is not being following, it is very difficult to hold the leaders accountable. So <coughs> Panama happened and our Prime Minister also had his name, his family was uh, named in Panama. So uh, he's not willing to resign and go by himself. And uh, we don't have institutions developed enough to cater for this problem. So there is one position which the ruling uh, party takes that, you know, he's not the only one who is corrupt in the country. So we won't start with him. What about other people who have been in power before him? So first of all, I wanted to ask, is there any specific law which makes it more uh, morally reprehensible for a sitting prime minister to be corrupt and greater accountability is demanded? Uh, or expected of uh, the sitting prime minister. And secondly, if you cannot do anything or at the local level as an individual or an NGO, are there any international mechanisms available which are effective enough to hold your sitting prime minister or, or head of the state accountable? Any institutions or 
Mm. <laughs> Big one. Yes. Richard? Yeah, okay. Um, as part of Section A incentive restructuring strategies, is part of that targeting the salaries of certain key enforcement officers, such as the Board of Revenue, so that the officer of the Board of Revenue doesn't say, well, Okay, yes, it would be great to protect local industry, but I want to send my child to school. I want to be able to, I, w I want my mum to be able to get medicine. Hmm. So, as part of that, yep. saying, okay, we will restructure and set strategies hmm. so that you have a salary on which you can do that. Yes. Okay. Thanks. I do. I do quite like your, your, your approach, but my question actually uh, focuses on, on the approach that you're taking to anti-corruption. Uh, how how disaggregated are different are different sectors of you know, say of a society such such that we target a particular sector and then um, there's no influence from other mm. parts of, of society. I mean, because mm. societies are not this. Yeah. I just wanted to ask on the actual um, structure of your research itself. Um, I, I think, am I right in saying it's Nigeria, Tanzania, and Bangladesh you're focusing on? What the reason behind those three choices was? And then, I guess, in terms of the four points you've outlined, um, is the idea to collaborate with DFID to then have? case examples of it working in, in practice and to actually see what the results of that would be? This is a very in, important debate, and I, David and I have had long discussions. And so Okay, so the, the basic point that I would make is that, yes, there's a lot of informality in advanced countries, and this informality, as David and you've just pointed out, is critical in the operation of the formal. So the formal and the informal always work together. But there's a fundamental difference which is that when the informality comes head on into clash with the formality, you can trigger an alternative formal process, and that alternative formal process may or has a high probability of giving you redress. Let me give you an example. Okay? So when universities make appointments of lecturers or professors, is that a rule-following process? No, because there's a formal rule, there's an advertisement, da 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 but then immediately the head of department picks up the phone and calls their pals and says, we have a job coming up, do you have any bright students? Now, so the issue is that those connections have an advantage, right? Because they bring some people in and others don't because they don't have the informal links and, and they don't know how to operate it. And so those people are left out. So the informal is, is working with the formal. But if you, through that for largely informal process, you appoint a completely incompetent person who has poorer qualifications on paper than people who applied and you didn't appoint them, in principle, there is a formal process you can trigger off, which in nine cases out of 10 will get people into serious trouble. Okay? So in practice, as long as the informality works in line with the formality and doesn't contradict the formality too much, the informality adds a lot of, of detail to how it operates. In a developing country, the informality can completely violate the formality. You can appoint the, the nephew of the, the vice chancellor who has no qualifications, 
and there is no formal process through which anything can be done. I think there is a difference here. The difference is the degree to which you can trigger the formality eventually to have another look at. And which formality is triggered also is informal, so it's completely arbitrary in that sense, right? But Theresa May, in doing whatever she's going to do, is if she breaks some very serious case law, we'll get into trouble. But her trick is to find enough gaps in, in what is existing that she has to find. In a developing country, you don't have to w w wait for any tricks. You just blatantly violate the, the, all the rules, and you can get away with it. This is seriously different, Scott. I mean, I think that that is really important. Now, on some of the other questions, I think you guys can... can you should start. Who, who are you talking to? Remember, I, I can guess, see. Uh, I guess the first question, the second question. Okay, was your question. What about, but you can answer the one on why we picked Tanzania and Nigeria. Okay. <laughs> and we have another one, which is actually That very important. good question, yes. yes. Yeah. The sectoral uh, one, sectoral and then one. there was Richard. But you've got eight minutes between you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, let's start. Pakistan, you know, whether you're talking about South Asia, whether you're talking about any other developing country in Africa, Latin America, the problem that you will find is, as you very correctly said, if you have, you know, you, you implicate Mr. Nawaz Sharif, there, there are 10 others before him, presidents and prime ministers, who would be similarly implicated. And if you changed Mr. Sharif for somebody else, for instance, you know, Mushtaq talked about the patron-client politics, the political structures that you have. It's very difficult to distance yourself and be part of the political establishment. Let, let me, let me, make, uh, let me put, put an example in front of you. Obviously, you know Tariq Kane Saf, and you know Imran Khan and where he's coming from. He tried to bring in a new kind of politics, which was supposed to be you know, beyond patron-client politics and beyond any kind of kinship networks, etc. Despite the successes that he's had, even in a, you know, a state as difficult as Sindh, he's still not being able to replicate his, and Khaibar Pakhtunkhwa, he's not being able to do anything in Islamabad. And where he has had successes, it's because people from the PPP have come in who bring with them a certain kind of patron-client network with them. And I'm not talking feudal politics here in Pakistan, which a lot of people you know, blame. You know, that's the reason why Pakistan's going all wrong. It's a different kind of, it, feudalism is used, but it's a different kind of patron-client politics. You'll find similarities in India, in, in Bangladesh. So unless you have those connections, it's not possible for someone to be you know, in, a, in a kind of position of political supremacy. And to do that is exactly the kind of cleaning of the stables we are saying is not going to be possible in a developing country. So we just have to be patient. You know, in, let me just cross the border and look at India, and people say, oh, Modi's done wonderful things for anti-corruption. He's doing a different kind of corruption. That doesn't mean corruption has gone down in India. Maybe, you know, at the margins, corruption has gone down, but it is still a hugely corrupt society under supposedly a very anti-corrupt prime minister. So without those links, it's going to be very difficult for you to just change the system and, and, and get rid of Mr. Sharif. So unfortunately, we're all stuck with these leaders for a very long time to come. <laughs> Uh, the other bit is, is there an international organization? Unfortunately not. There are sovereign laws. You, know, you can't have an international court of justice coming and saying, you know, nasty guy, get rid of him. So no, that's, that's also not going to be possible. The one just has to be patient. And it's where these incremental, maybe at a local council level, at the mayoral level in Karachi, for instance, what's happening, things could change, but not at a big bang level of big boss. I start addressing your question and answering why Tanzania, so then I'll pass to Pallavi and Mushtaq. You can for, do it. Well, um, no, I think, I think it's, it's a critical issue, right? How, how you cut the cake, how you cut this complex system where there are all these interdependencies between all sectors, right? If you are looking at 
And the thing, as Mushtaq was saying, we are trying to start bottom-up from very specific areas where we know that there is some, you know, we've been trying to understand if it is possible to do something with the way in which the rents and the corruption dynamics are happening. And then in that mapping exercise, we are starting now it's exactly the inception phase, try to understand exactly how the critical node you know, can be unpacked and manipulated in some form with some of these strategies and how that could have an impact across all the other activities that are connected to that, right? So if you take typically, for example, you know, I'm doing some work in Tanzania on food value chain, right? The distribution of rents within the chains involve different type of actors. Some of them can be in other sectors to a certain extent, but fundamentally they're all interconnected. And the capacity of a certain sector to increase productivity might depend on the way in which some suppliers, some part of the value chain works in a different way, right? Just, just to give an example. But I think that's, that's as a, as an important issue, but all these different type of cases that we have that are sector specific allow us to start entering into this uh, system of, of uh, interdependencies. In terms of the countries, I mean, we basically had to partially build on our competencies and partially try to identify countries that allow us to do some, uh, you know, come out with potentially even some generalization around what, what is the impact of these type of strategies in different contexts. So we have three countries which are in fundamentally three different states. Uh, well, I can talk, say about what is happening in Tanzania. Tanzania just had a, an important election, which uh, in last October, the new president Magufuli managed to, uh, within the ruling party has been there since the, 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 the post-colonial period of the CCM, has been able to uh, start a different type of discuss discussion and discourse on corruption in Tanzania. Um, the government has always been pretty stable, so we are not in a context like Nigerians, but I would say, well, actually, the getting an electoral result is already quite an achievement. But on the other side, we know that the CCM has been adding internal fractions, internal problems as a result of this last election. The parallel election in Zanzibar has been uh, a massive uh, uh, you know, call in terms of the oppositions. The people refuse to go to vote, and you know, the, the CCM won 90% or something like that. So there is a, a situation where there is a, a country which is clearly entering into a, an interesting phase of transition, also in terms of the type of activities that are there. Uh, there is coming gas and oil. This is potentially going to create a big area for uh, rents capture. Uh, and is a, a country which, in a sense, in comparison to Nigeria and Bangladesh, also has a pretty low development of manufacturing sector and productive type of organization. So we have a number of key players who actually control a big part of the economy and companies that actually cut across many sectors. So one of the, just to give you some flavor, some of the projects that we have is actually to understand where this company like Macreza, Modern Enterprise, uh, uh, Dangote in Nigeria, where they are coming from, how they manage to uh, create big pockets to make investment in a context where without big pockets it's pretty difficult to, to start any, any type of business. Bangladesh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the, the issue of interdependence is that precisely we don't know, right? So the analysis will be really to find these networks and connections. And if, if a, a sector turns out to be really interconnected, it means that it's not feasible to do something about it. So, so there are there are going to be areas where we will have to withdraw because we are taking on, let's say, ultimately the prime minister. No, we're not, for in instance, case, in Nigeria looking at the NNPC, uh, the National Petroleum Corporation, because everybody knows what the problem is. You can't sit in Buhari's office and say you need to privatize or you need to do something about it. Everybody knows that, but it's yes, it's high impact. But what's the feasibility? It's exactly what Mushtaq was talking about. So if it's mm -hmm. 
if it if it encompasses all sectors, it's not something that we're going to look at. Par excellence, in the case of Tanzania, all corruption starts in the port. But if you start working on the port, you are basically blocked completely. Mm -hmm. But there are also activities that are affected different ways, so you can deal with that. And the answer to your question on, on, uh, on salaries, yes, indeed. But the point is that that only works if there is some enforcement on the official that now that you have got the higher salary, you have to d deliver. In, in other words, just a salary increase is not sufficient and sometimes it is not necessary. And for reasons of time, I like the enforcement out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Very quickly, just last, your last one. We played a little smart. If it spends the maximum amount of money in Bangladesh, Tanzania, Nigeria, Personally, we found these countries very really interesting. Different people spending a lot of money. As Antonio said, they're all at very different e levels of development, political settlements. Make for very interesting analysis. So there's really an amalgam of that. Okay, well, you'll join with me in thanking our trio for a great presentation and good luck with the fantastic project. That's the end of our show. Thank you for listening. You can find all our content on soasradio.org and also on cist.soas.ac.uk.